All right, so first, just some review. Um, We've worked through a variety of individual areas of Bible interpretation so far. Things like genre or literary type, um, historical background, by which in this context we mean um, like the place of writing, to whom it was written, all of those kinds of things. The theme or the purpose of the letter, the importance of deriving that for interpreting any particular portion of, I'm saying letter, I'm thinking in terms of an epistle, but whatever document it might be, whatever book from the Bible. Um, Then, the importance of understanding the structure in terms of an outline. Um, Then the far context and the near context, both those being Uh, versions of the literary context. So any particular portion we're studying exists within a larger self-contained writing, a book of the Bible, and we need to know exactly where it falls within that. Do we have enough of them? Yeah, it looks like over here on the left, we or your right, we have a few people who need some more. Are there enough? Isaac? Okay. Great. Does everyone have one? Raise your hand if you don't have one and you want one. <laughs> okay. Good. So, sorry, go back to the things we're reviewing. Um, just a variety of individual pieces in the interpretive process. I left off with the literary context, there was also the cultural customs um, and word studies. And then last week, we saw how all of this then needs to be brought together into the final process of just interpreting the text. And that's where a lot of the art that Pastor Farrell explained in terms of a science in an art in hermeneutics, a lot of the art comes together, being able to weigh what's most important with any particular text and how much time to spend on each one of them. So that's where we left off um, last week. And all of this, though, still leaves us at the point of understanding for ourselves what the passage means. But once we know what God has revealed, we need to apply it to our own lives. There's still a a huge step that lies in front of us. And not only do we need to apply it to our own lives, but we need to make sure that others understand the truth and are helped to apply it to their lives. There's an, an evangelistic or a discipleship dimension here as well. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Having understood what God has said is vital, but there's still a little bit more to be done. So today, tonight, we're going to work through this lesson four. We're going to very briefly consider some aspects of communicating the meaning of the text. We'll not spend too much time on that. Number two, we're going to spend a good bit of time discussing how to faithfully move from what the text means to how it should be applied. So the process of application. And then briefly at the end, we're going to consider a list of additional Bible study principles provided in the handout. But we're going to spend most of our time thinking about application and expanding a bit on what's in the handout. Um, So as you think about where we're going tonight, focus your minds there. All right, so starting though with the handout and dealing with some of those aspects of communicating the meaning of the text... Uh, how hermeneutics relates to exegesis and exposition. Jump down there to A. Uh, I think you guys have a blank, so let's fill those in if you have a pen. First is principles of hermeneutics. Principles of hermeneutics. And those would be tools or methods and rules used to arrive at an accurate interpretation. Principles of hermeneutics. Second is application of hermeneutics is exegesis. That's spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. I realize I'm spelling this word. You guys are probably thinking, why would you spell that word and not hermeneutics for us? Uh, application of hermeneutics is exegesis, and that is the process of applying hermeneutics to find out what the text says and means. Let's move on to C, and then I'll just try to make this clear for you how these three relate. C, exegesis accumulates information from the text to be communicated, and that process of communicating that information is exposition. 
So that's your third blank there, exposition, which is the clear communication of the meaning, purpose, principles, and application of the text. So essentially, the way these three terms come together is hermeneutics is like your rules or your guidelines for interpretation, the guidebook. Exegesis is the interpretation itself. You've got a series of guidelines to help you do it. Exegesis is the actual interpretation. And then exposition is communicating that interpretation to others. Does that make sense? Good. Moving on to Roman numeral number three. The most important things to remember for communicating God's word to others. First of all, that the most important thing is not some sort of teaching techniques. Um, We can spend a lot of time talking about techniques for communication, but if you don't have the right content, or you don't have a godly life, or the Spirit's not working, it's not going to be very helpful, however good your teaching techniques might be. Rather, what we need is the Word of God being used by the Spirit of God to transform people. As you think about what God is doing in the world, whether through evangelism or through building up and maturing his church, those two things are absolutely critical. The word of God and the spirit of God. The word of God, it's going to sound silly, but in and of itself doesn't have any power. The spirit of God, though, his choice instrument is the word of God. Think of a sword. A sword laying on the ground is a powerful tool, but apart from the person wielding it, it's not going to do anything, right? So the Spirit of God, though, chooses to make his primary means of working among people through the Word of God. And therefore, if we want to see the Spirit of God work, we go to the Word of God, right? We deliver the Word of God. We provide the Word of God. We open the Word of God because it's through the meaning of that the Spirit's going to work. So, the most important thing in teaching the Bible is that the Word of God be provided, be delivered, be given, conveyed, communicated, and that the Spirit work through that Word. We can't control where the Spirit works. Just like John 3, we can't control where the wind blows. But we can do what the Lord requires of us, which is opening up and conveying the word of God. We can convey the gospel to someone, and we can't do anything to guarantee that the Spirit's going to work through that gospel to give that person a new heart and save them. But we do our part, and that's all the Lord requires of us. I might add also, we, we, we pray, right? <laughs> we pray that the Lord would make uh, that gospel message effective in their heart by regenerating them and giving them a new heart. Um, But yes, so our part is to use the word of God and to pray that the spirit would use that to transform. So working through these, most important things to remember, number one, is not simply teaching techniques. B, first, the teaching of the word of God must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then C, which is second, this gets kind of confusing. Um, First, the teaching of the word of God must be empowered by the spirit. Second, um, the teaching must come from a person whose heart is right before the Lord and who has allowed the truth of God's word to speak to and impact his or her heart. Um, Certainly the Lord is capable of working through people who are not godly, uh, but generally his means is to work through godly people, people who themselves are being transformed by the word before they then seek um, to convey that to others. And then on the backside, third, it's teaching which is accurate to the historical grammatical context. Meaning, if you want the Spirit of God to work, you can can be praying the Spirit will work. You yourself can be a godly person. But if what you're ultimately providing isn't the Word of God, then you're, you're sort of holding back the very tool that the Spirit generally chooses to use to work. Now, that might sound obvious, but the whole reason for hermeneutics isn't just to try to convince you to use the Word of God, to open the Word of God. It's to say, don't only use the words of God, but understand that to actually have the revelation of God, we need to not only have the words, we need to understand those words are right. 
You can have the words, misunderstand them, and that's not the revelation of God. A misunderstanding of the word isn't, a, isn't his revelation. A right understanding is. We don't have the word of God until we've understood it aright. And so that's why hermeneutics is so important. We want to understand it rightly. All right, now moving into that Roman numeral number four, the relationship between interpretation, principles, application, and implementation. Now notice, when he says principles here, he doesn't mean the same thing on the previous page where he talked about principles of interpretation like hermeneutics, the rules or the guidelines for interpreting. Here, principles is different. Principles now is sort of, as we'll see, as we all explain a bit more, but it's essentially just those general abstract truths um, that can be applied in any cultural context. So what's this relationship between interpretation, principles, application, and implementation? I would essentially just summarize this and say, this whole section we're going to spend a good bit of time on is how do we move from having rightly understood the scriptures to now applying them? But let's, before we go to kind of my own notes expanding on this, let's just work through what remains on this page. Notice on the right side of the page, you have a box that has explanations for four things, interpretation, principles, application, implementation. Let's first just review what he says here. Interpretation. Every passage has one interpretation. The interpretation is what God and the human author intended the original audience and us to understand by what was written. Some interpretations have several parts, and some interpretations have multiple fulfillments, but the interpretation is always one. That moves on then to principles. Every passage has one or more principles. A principle is a truth which is not culturally bound. It applies to any culture, time, or location. Then application. Every passage has many applications. Application tells how we can apply the principles, the principles from a text to our life. Application tells us how to respond to God's truth. And finally, implementation. Every passage's applications can be implemented in many ways. Implementation addresses specific ways in which the application of a text can be applied, or I would say implemented, <laughs> using applied, there's kind of confusing. Implementation is more specific than application and gives concrete methods, techniques, and procedures for implementing application. If implementation is not achieved, then study is of no value. You must implement God's truth. So look at this diagram and all these arrows here on the left side of the page. Notice how there's right in the middle on the left, one interpretation. So everything we've studied thus far is bringing us up to this point of understanding what the text we're studying means. What's its interpretation? And there it is represented in this diagram, the interpretation. From that interpretation, though, you know what the text means, we might see that the text is conveying to us multiple principles. And that's what those four principles, both above and below, indicate. As he says, it could be any number of principles, one or more. This diagram shows four of them. But the number of principles we find in the text. But then those principles can lead to application, meaning basically, what does that principle then look like in our own world, in our own culture? So that's great. Now we, now we understand like, what it should look like for it to be applied. But then implementation is actually going out and doing that putting that into practice. So you can say each of those applications can then be implemented in multiple ways. So that's what that diagram is trying to show us. You start with your interpretation, move to the principles that flow out of that text, and then determine how should that be applied, and then you actually implement those applications. Now, let's take that and let's kind of unpack that a bit. First of all, just step back and think about the imperative of applying the word of God. For those of us in a church like Timberlake, we are regularly coming face to face with the word of God. In a church like Timberlake, we're all encouraged to regularly be reading God's word on our own. And basically every time we show up to get together, the word's playing a part in that. We, we just have a lot of exposure to the word of God, which is wonderful. And yet, there's a very real risk that we would become lackadaisical about that. It'd become familiar. 
And so we hear what God has said, and that sounds nice, and move on. Got something else to do now. But we miss the fact that we've just heard the word of God. God has just told us a truth that we need to believe. He's just told us something we need to do. Wow, that is significant. And yet often we just, you know, can walk away. The, the cause of it, that we're regularly exposed to the word of God, is a good thing. The danger is our lackadaisical attitude. So when we move to application, let's not miss the fact that this is weighty. Every time you open the word of God, be thinking about that. Wow, I'm, I'm going to hear the word of God, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to demand something of me, and I need to make sure I don't quickly close my Bible and move on before I think about how do I respond rightly to what the Lord has said. There are two dangers when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Number one is that we would begin applying the Bible without first understanding it. So largely, this whole class is aimed at addressing this danger. We would begin applying the Word of God before we've correctly understood it. Now, it's usually that we've misunderstood it, right? We think we've understood it, and we move on. We assume we've understood it. A misunderstanding of the Bible is not the revelation of God. We can read the words of God, repeat the words of God, meaning the words on the text, the words on the page. But if what we're understanding those words to mean is not what God intended those words to mean, we don't have the revelation of God. We can say we don't have the word of God, however much we might have the words of God before us. Is that clear? Okay. I know I'm, by saying words and words, it's probably a little bit confusing, but the point is, until we've understood what God means by those words, we don't actually have revelation from him, and we can't think that whatever we might imagine those words to mean is really what God does mean. You track with me? And yet so many methods of simply opening the Bible, being content with the, the verse of the day, without really going into detail, there's no criticism of a verse of the day, but without going into detail to understand rightly what it means— is just missing that point. It's assuming that, well, if it makes sense to me when I initially read it, if it makes some sense, surely then that must be the word of God. But we've got to be aware that if I haven't rightly understood it, however much it might make sense, I don't necessarily have the word of God. And, and then beyond that, if we take the word of God seriously, we're saying, okay, I'm opening the word of God. He's spoken. Now I must respond that, that sobriety, that seriousness, becomes problematic if we haven't correctly understood it. Because now we're insistent, we're serious about putting into practice something that God hasn't said. That could actually be contrary to what he has said elsewhere. So, first danger is that we begin applying the Bible without first understanding it. Let me kind of give a little, very practical aspect to this. When we begin talking about whenever you open the word of God, just realize you have an obligation to respond. It's helpful sometimes to think, okay, every morning when I'm doing my devotions or evening or whenever you do your Bible study, that I need to make sure I'm walking away with application. I think that can be helpful. What, what's commendable about that is the intentionality to make sure we're applying it. The danger is what I might initially here call some kind of micro-application, where we haven't yet really understood the whole. As we've seen in this process of interpretation, there's a number of steps that may not be fully covered in your one 45-minute slot for studying your Bible in the morning. And we've got to have the, the long game in view. It's okay sometimes to spend your time reading the book again, trying to understand the flow of thought, the structure, the outline— and you get to the end of your time, and you have to close up your Bible and say, okay, I think I've made some progress in understanding the structure, but I don't yet fully understand that. I've still got some other steps to do so I fully understand this passage and move on. It's not as though you're going into the day without any truth if you've been having a steady diet of the Word of God. Um, it would be kind of like a man who says, you know, I don't want my work to be a waste of time. I want to make sure that every time I work, I... I walk away with some kind of payment for that. So therefore, I'm going to eschew any type of job that holds off my paycheck for a week or two weeks. I insist upon something that will pay right away. So maybe I can collect bottle caps. Maybe I can collect cans. Um, 
You know, maybe I can find some, someone who needs their, their, their uh, fence painted and get paid right away. Because I'm just going to insist that I need immediate payoff. So I'm only going to do jobs that give immediate payoff. Or we would say the types of jobs that usually do that often aren't going to pay you too well. You'd be better off just having the long game in view and getting a career that even if you only get a paycheck every two weeks, you know, it's going to be a much more sizable paycheck. It's going to pay you better overall in the long run. And a part of what we're trying to explain here, what I'm trying to explain, is that that's sometimes going to be how interpretation works. You may not walk away with a little nugget that's easy to apply every time you open your Bible, but you're building into that. And the goal is that as you understand the passage, as you're arriving at conclusions, you're then intentional about applying it. Is that clear? Okay, I hope that's clear. Next, I said that was a first danger. Now for a second danger. And this is what we're really focusing on today, that we would understand the Bible, but not follow through with applying it. Understand the Bible, but not follow through with applying it. And I've already addressed this. It's it's so easy for us because we're so often exposed to the Word of God. And I hope, I hope, I commend to you, trying to build into your weekly routine practices that help you to come back to the Word of God, particularly as you've heard it corporately, and corporately think about it. It might mean, as your family gets together on Sunday afternoons, talking about what does the Word say and how can we apply it. One way that we've sort of structurally built this into the life of the body at Timberlake are small groups. We don't teach something new in small groups. We kind of gather together and we think more deeply about how we can apply what we've all heard on Sunday mornings. So those are critical steps to try to make sure we are applying it. Um, and there's more ways to do that. You can, you can start saying, you know, maybe every Sunday night we want to have a couple people over and just talk about how we can apply what we heard on Sunday night. Those are just very intentional ways to make sure that we're following through with applying. All right, so two broad um, goals for us tonight as we talk about application. Number one, we must apply. So let's be clear about how to do that, um, but, and also making sure that we, we realize that we're reminded of that, we're motivated to do that, and secondly, that we would grow in the skill of making sure that application is based upon the intended meaning of the text, right? So to make sure we're applying, and then to make sure it's being based upon what the text actually means. You can see those two goals connect to the two dangers that we would either begin applying without correctly understanding or cease or or fail to apply at all. Now, as we jump into this, and we have limited time, for a topic that really is quite large, even as we've spent so much time talking about how to arrive at the correct meaning of the text, it's not as though application is just one small, obvious step afterward. There are just lots of complications in right application that deserves deep thought and yet we aren't going to spend a whole lot of time. So just a necessary caveat on the front end that we're going to do our best to lay out some general guidelines or principles for moving from your conclusion about what the text means to how to apply it. And yet, in the details, when you move from text to text, there are a lot, it's a complex topic, and we need to keep growing in this. We need to keep talking about it. But we, we have a steady diet of thinking about this just because you're always doing this. You're reading the Bible for yourself and trying to apply it. You're then interacting with other believers around you within the body and talking about that process. We're seeing from the pulpit this very process happening on a weekly basis, the word being explained and the word being applied, right? So we're seeing what that process looks like. Sometimes we just need to be more attentive, and we can learn all kinds of lessons just by watching. Okay, he explained the text. Now he got to this application. What, what explains how he got there? And we can be kind of intuitively learning how that process works as we're watching that unfold. So, little caveat, we're going to sketch some guiding principles. By no means is this kind of a comprehensive explanation. All right, let's jump in. Application. I'm going to give us simplistic, but three broad categories of texts we might come across. And we're going to talk about how, how we apply each one. So first, we might come across in the Bible abstract truths or principles. Abstract truths or principles. 
And by abstract, I simply mean it's general enough to be taken and applied at any time and in any place. Let's kind of step back here for a moment. The Lord communicates to us in a kind of a condescension kind of way. The Lord doesn't necessarily inhabit any particular human culture, does he? And yet we, as humans, can't get ourselves outside of any particular culture. We might be able to occupy multiple cultures, but we can't live in some sort of supercultural world. So God, very graciously, even though God doesn't necessarily speak all on his own, (laughs) Greek or Hebrew or English or German or French or anything like that, God comes to people and communicates to them. I mean, we might wish that the Lord had communicated, written, or inspired the Bible in English, but he didn't initially give the Bible to people who spoke English. He very graciously gave the Bible in the, the common understood language of the people to whom he was giving it, right? Whatever language they spoke, God stepped into that world and communicated to them in that context. And then along with that language, he also employed all kinds of cultural factors, the symbolic world, Um, All all those types of things that go along with clear communication within a particular culture, he sort of used those to communicate to them in the world they're in. But that then means that when we live in a different culture, we then have to figure out, okay, how do we convey? And so much of this interpretation is a process of moving across languages, um, moving across cultures, right? But there's also a level at which it's not simply language or culture, it's an issue of truth being applied in a particular context and then needing sometimes to extract it from that context and apply it into a different context. And so right now, we're looking at these truths that aren't necessarily applied. We could say they're unapplied truths in this first category, abstract truths or principles. Can anyone give an example? Just shout out an example of such an unapplied abstract truth or principle. About something like, love the Lord your God. Pretty generic, right? You might need to convey it in a particular language that those people speak, but it's still very broad. It's largely unapplied. And in any culture, any time, that is going to be relevant. Would be another one. How about love your neighbor? Right? Pretty broad, abstract, yet to be applied. A lot of the Ten Commandments, do not steal, do not murder, things like do not show partiality. And with these, we already have something. um, I'm not sure what I meant by that. Um, So essentially, these are generic principles, and when we read them in the biblical text, we don't necessarily need to do any process of trying to extract the principle, do we? We've already got the principle. Now it just remains to us to apply it. Now, making sure that we apply that principle in a faithful way, in a way that's consistent with what the author would means by that and the way the author would want us to convey it, in this case, the way the Lord would want us to apply it, is still a task, but it's generally much easier to apply these types of abstract truths or principles. So that's the first category. Those are some of the easiest ones. Another category we come to are abstract truths or principles and their application. What we find in the text is both the statement of the abstract truth or principle and in application of it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. We'll look at an example of this. Luke chapter 10. Just to remind you, we're in the second category, looking at texts where there's both a general truth and its application for us in a particular culture. So primarily, we'll be looking at verses 30 to 37, which is a familiar parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But first, notice the end of the preceding section beginning in verse 27. So Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
There's one of those generic principles, abstract truth or principle. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So now we're getting into application, right? And what Jesus is going to do with this parable is to help us apply it in a particular context. He's going to show both, he's going to show the application of a general principle. And I'm not going to read it, but you guys remember uh, this story. And basically the principle is we're learning to do likewise, like what the Samaritan did. That's a particular application of the principle of loving, loving your neighbor as yourself. So that would be an instance where in the biblical text we have both the general principle and an application of it in that particular context. And this is very useful because by having the application as well, we have at least some idea how it should be applied. Even if that application doesn't necessarily carry over easily for us, I mean, at the most narrow level, like for that exact thing, for us to be able to do likewise, we would need to be, you know, walking along this road and find someone who's been robbed and then put into practice. So obviously there's multiple levels of principalization, but nonetheless, we at least see one example that can help us, this one example of an application, help us to know what it might look like to put that general principle into practice, which is then going to guide us in faithfully applying that principle in our own context. So second category would be a text that has the general principle stated explicitly, plus also an application of it. And now let's move on to the third one. And this third one is really probably where we struggle the most, where in the text all we have are applied principles. The general principle is never provided for us, stated for us. We simply have applications. So consider, for example, Luke 10. If all we had was the parable of the Good Samaritan with its closing command to go and do likewise, we would need to discern the general principle so that we can apply it in other situations. We'd have to kind of step back and say, what's this teaching us? What is it we are to go and do likewise? Well, we're to love our neighbor, and then we can apply that elsewhere. Here's another example. Instructions in the Old Testament regarding things like debt and interest on loans. And while the difficulty is we need to understand how those things operated in their own cultural world, right? So it's very helpful to know that in the ancient Near East, generally people didn't take out loans for the sake of starting a business. They took out loans when they were already in a desperate situation and couldn't feed their family. And then those giving loans generally weren't doing it um, simply because you know, they were wanting to help someone by helping them start up a business and then knowing they can play a part in reaping from the benefits when that business does well by getting interest on that loan. No, rather, they did it because, let's say, here's this one um, farmer who has a little bit of land he's simply trying to provide for his family, and one year the crops aren't good and he can't provide for his family, so he needs some, a loan to be able to Uh, buy some food to provide for his family, the person giving that loan is generally hoping that they won't be able to pay it back, that farmer won't, so that he can eventually take that land from him. And so it really was kind of um, an exploitative system. So you can see in that type of a system, suddenly now it's very dangerous to to get involved, to take out a loan, and um, requiring interest on the loans is basically saying, I'm choosing to use loans for exploitation, not to help someone out. Um, so the point is just we can, we can look at those examples now and derive a principle when we've understood it correctly in its context that then can be applied elsewhere. We need to be careful about getting ourselves in void, involved in kind of exploitative financial relationships, right? Where someone's intentionally trying to take advantage of us and we're doing it only because we're desperate. And the Old Testament, of course, provides categories where there should be fellow members within the covenant community who will provide interest-free loans for you so that you don't have to be exploited in that way. Another example would be Old Testament instructions regarding, say, a parapet. Remember, a parapet on a flat-roofed house would be essentially a fence around the house. Like Deuteronomy 22.8 is one text that requires this. So basically it just requires that when you build a house, and at this time it would have been a flat-roofed house, and you would do things on the roof, 
You would have stairs that go up to the roof because it's flat. You can do things up there, do laundry, whatever you need. So the law requires you put basically a fence around it. Well, we don't really have flat roof houses, so how could you possibly apply that? Well, there's a general principle there, which is that when you have property, you need to take responsibility to make sure that people will be safe on your property. So that might be applied elsewhere by saying if you have a pool, a pool poses a threat to other people who come, particularly children, right? And so it would be responsible to put some kind of fence around your pool to make sure people don't fall in. Um, Just an example of how we can take a particular command. All we have is the application. We don't have a principle there. We have to kind of work backward and say, what's the principle? Something like when you have personal property, you need to take responsibility to make sure people are safe on your property and then apply that in a different context. So remember, we're in the third category here of types of things we find in the Bible that need to be applied. The first was abstract truths or principles. The second was abstract truths or principles with their application. And now the third one, just the application itself, applied principles. Let me keep working through some more examples for you. Um, The whole first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, basically, is Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians, verses 2 through 10. Well, what do you do with that? Like, Paul's just telling us how he prayed for the Thessalonians. How would you apply that? Well, there are certain principles built into that. We can discern through the things Paul tells the Thessalonians he's praying for them for. We can discern Paul's priorities, right? What's, what's important to Paul? And that can then, once we take those principles out and say these are important things in the Christian life, things that Paul valued highly, we can apply that in multiple spheres. We can apply in our own life, like what do we prioritize? What's going to be most important generically? But then specifically in our own prayer life, that's an obvious place to apply it. What are important things to pray for? There's so many things we could pray for, but we can learn here. What are the things that Paul put as the highest priorities in praying for fellow believers? And we can discern that. So you see that process of taking a particular prayer, extracting the principles, and then we're able to apply in a different context. Um, Psalm 73 would be another one. We won't take time to read it, but I'll just give you a quick summary. Many of you will remember it. It's a popular psalm. Okay, make sure I remember this. Psalm 73 essentially begins with... uh, the psalmist saying he looks around and sees other people who are prospering, the wicked who are prospering. He actually begins with a statement that's a general principle. Like, surely the Lord blesses those who worship him, and it's a hard road for those who, who defy the Lord. But then he says, but then I look around in the world, and the reality I see seems to be the opposite. It is hard for the righteous, but yet the wicked seem to flourish. And so in Psalm 73, the psalmist is just wrestling with this. Like, I know this principle, and yet this is what I see in the world. And then he says, when I came into the Lord's sanctuary, I kind of saw their end. I saw what it looks like in the long run. And, oh, that is not prospering for the wicked. Their end is not good. It is not enviable. And so here, basically, the psalmist is saying, when I looked in the short run, I envied the wicked. But when I actually had a higher level view... I realized, no, the Lord is right. I need to trust him that it is better to be righteous. And so we have a particular example of the psalmist wrestling with this. And yet we can extract a principle from it that we can then apply on our own. The principle is not given to us explicitly. We're able to see the way that principle is applied in the life of the psalmist and then work backward to see what that principle is. So just to summarize kind of this the, the method needed for this last option, which is, we call it principalizing, trying to extract a principle from a text. The goal is to discern the principle behind the application and then to carry that principle into our own particular context. Something else to keep in mind, I'm kind of brought to an end those three categories of types of texts we might find. Um, but in addition to cultural context, I've taught, talked a bit about you know, different times, different places, different cultures, all of those things required finesse in applying it in a particular culture. But it's not just cultures. We also need to think in terms of different covenantal contexts. What I mean by that is the Lord has a consistent, unified plan for redeeming the world, for making all things right, and yet he's working it out in history in various ways. 
with various covenants, right? And so Hebrews, for example, is a great one that kind of says here there was the Mosaic covenant um, that had one way God was working with his people. The old covenant would be the language that Hebrews uses. But then that's been done away, and now we move into the new covenant. And the Lord works differently with his people now than he did under the Mosaic covenant. All under an overarching plan of God, but just doing it a bit differently. This isn't surprising. Parents parent differently when their children are teenagers than when their children are infants, and yet they still have one unified plan for their children, right? <laughs> Whatever that might be. It might be something as simple as making sure they make it to adulthood alive. But nonetheless... There's, the plans change, and it's not that the parents are fickle. It's that at different times, that purpose needs to work itself out in different ways. So covenantal context is very important because, and the particular way this has to work out for us, is so much of the Old Testament, which is so much of our Bible, was given to those within the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And yet, we live in a different covenant, So recognizing that covenantal context is going to be very important. Let me just give you one particular example. The Old Testament, I shouldn't say just the Old Testament, specifically the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, requires that members of the covenant observe certain food laws, right? You guys are familiar with lots of those food laws. I think the most commonly recognized one would be the restriction on eating pork, Um, but there was a lot of them, shellfish and many other things. And yet, we come to the New Testament, and the New Testament is overwhelmingly explicit. Whether you go to a place like Acts 10, with uh, Peter's vision on the rooftop before he goes to Cornelius' house, where he's told all things are clean. If you go back to Mark, where Jesus tells his disciples that you know, all foods are declared to be clean. Um, we can go forward to Galatians, where the Jewish believers within that church, those churches in Galatia, are seeking to require the Gentile believers coming in, keep in mind, coming into the church under the new covenant, to obey the requirements of the old covenant, and Paul's saying you cannot do that. So just to, there's an example of where we can see very clearly in the New Testament that a lot of things required under the old covenant are no longer relevant. Now, this whole issue of what we do with old covenant law as New Covenant believers, is a very complicated one. I think we'll probably all get some clarification as we work through Romans, because Romans spends some time, a good bit of time, dealing with this very thing. Um, So there's obviously various approaches to it, and the difficulty in trying to understand that is that on the one hand, there's very clear, maybe it's a bit too strong, strong suggestions that that Old Covenant law has no relevance to us. At one level, there's just the logic of it, if you're no longer a part of a contract or a covenant, then you don't have to do anything related that's stated as the stipulations of that contract, right? So if you're no longer, if you aren't a member of the old covenant, why would you be bound to do the stipulations of the old covenant? At another level, you have clear statements in the New Testament about things like um, the law being fulfilled, right? Um, but then on the other hand, you have statements that say things like, well, I did not come to you know, abolish, but to fulfill. So does that mean that we still, it's still applicable? We see certain biblical authors drawing principles, almost seeming to apply, like appeal to Old Testament texts. I should say specifically Old Covenant texts, for as though they're authoritative for what believers in the New Covenant ought to be doing. So the difficulty in working that whole issue out is what seem to be somewhat different signals and working bringing those together, synthesizing them is complex. So I'm just recognizing that that's a big issue you've got to think through in your own mind and land somewhere in terms of what's going to be the relevance there so that you can then determine how do we apply that. Now, that's that's a bigger topic than we could obviously cover now. I'm just trying to orient you somewhat to that, but at the very least, to be aware that changing covenantal context is very important as you think about application, not only changing cultural contexts. Also, when we talk about application, sometimes we can zero in on kind of very simple, obvious texts. The types of texts we often go to for applying um, are of a particular kind, you know, a particular command, and then how do we apply it over here? And yet, so much of the Bible is narrative, um, and it's really aimed largely at shaping our worldview, our outlook. 
the way we understand our world and our place in it and our responsibility in it, shaping our outlook. And that might sound abstract and irrelevant, but worldviews, um, interpretations of events, usually have built-in implications, meaning if you interpret the world a certain way, you think about it in a particular way, all of it is given meaning through a particular lens, there's usually built into that interpretation certain implied imperatives, right? If this is the way you view the world, then clearly this is what you would do in this situation and this situation. Maybe we could say interpretations have sort of implications about how you would act in light of that interpretation. Does that make sense? And so in many ways, this is, this is hyperbole, but it will get the point across. In many ways, the Lord could simply give us the narrative. The, we call it salvation history, giving us the big picture narrative of what he's doing, both what he's done and where it's all going, how he's going to resolve it all, and never give us any specific commands. And we could infer many of those. We could almost live a faithful life. That's hyperbole. But in many ways, what's happening then is, like with the epistles, the New Testament letters, the Lord's simply making that stuff concrete for us. You, you know the big story. You, you've seen this interpretation, and you're already making connections. You're already seeing, inferring what it looks like to live faithfully in light of what the Lord's doing as his people. But let me just make it explicit for you. This is what it looks like. Here are specific commands. Um, but the point is that you've got this narrative that doesn't, lend itself toward I call it, microscopic applications. And that's okay. We have to learn sometimes to, to kind of step into the world, allow it to shape our thinking, our, our outlook, and not get so caught up in kind of individual microscopic applications from narrative. So that's just another perspective on what so much of the narrative of the Bible is doing, how it's seeking to shape us, that often defies some of the more simplistic ways we think about application. Also, I want to just think about some various aspects of this process of application. Draw us back to something I said last week. I talked about the theme. It's important to understand the theme of a book. But then I said, in addition to theme, we should also seek to identify something else about the book. Do you remember what that was? Good. The purpose. Not only what was conveyed summarizes the theme, but why was it conveyed? And this is going to, understanding the purpose is really going to be helpful for you in directing application. Most portions of the Bible can probably be categorized either truths to be known and believed or commands to be obeyed, just generically. That's usually why something's being conveyed in the Bible, either to commend that to you, to know and believe, or to tell you this is what you ought to do, this is what you ought to obey. And when we know only content, or say the theme, um, we're often wondering, well, what do we do with it? But if we understand why the author conveyed that content, now we're a long ways down the road to beginning to determine how it should be applied, because now we know how that author intended it to be applied for the original readers. Let me give you an example. If we have a story about a boy who obeys and consequently is rewarded, that's just a summary of the content, a story about a boy who obeys and is rewarded. But I'm going to be helped in applying that story if I know the reason the author took the time to record that story and to communicate it. If the purpose was to encourage the readers to, be obey, to obey, then the principle will be something like this. We should obey because the results of obedience will usually be pleasant. But it could have been for a whole different purpose. It could be to encourage parents to have some sort of way of rewarding or punishing children because you know, it will teach them to do that. And that will have a different application. So understanding the purpose of a book is going to take us a long way in understanding how best to apply it. Another thing, the Bible teaches that God's not only concerned with our actions— and that our actions aren't where things actually start, whether good or bad. But it first goes back to something else. Where do righteous or wicked actions begin? In the heart. Exactly. So we can think of very familiar texts like Mark 7 or Matthew 15. Um, what comes out of us 
is evil, when that is the case, when what comes out of us is evil, the problem isn't primarily what came out, but what's within. And that's what needs to be changed. And as we're renewed, the Bible will teach us, from within, that change within, that renewal, will move itself outward into our actions. There needs to be an inward to outward process of change. And so that's why often um, we need to think not only in terms of application, meaning some external ways of changing, but also what I'll call implications, meaning asking, what does this say about what I ought to think or what I ought to believe, what I ought to feel, what I ought to delight in, what I ought to value, what I ought to um, choose with my will? Let me give you an example here. Imagine preachers preaching through Ephesians 5, a section about husbands, love your wives. And a man sitting in the congregation is like any fleshly man, um, just self-absorbed, loves himself, got married because he thought that's what would make him most happy. It was all self-oriented. This would be good for me. And here he finds himself with a marriage that's a wreck because he's continued to engage his wife as though the whole marriage exists for his happiness. And then he gets the application, right? The application is, husbands, go buy flowers for your wives. Well, he might go out and buy flowers for his wife, but we've made very little progress toward applying that text, have we? The issue is within the man's heart, and the whole issue, the issue means that we need to completely change things at a deep level. He's got to change the way he looks at the whole world, and quite frankly, even focusing on his marriage isn't going to be sufficient because the problem relates more deeply to how he thinks about life and his role in it. And his, he looks at the whole world as existing for him. He wakes up each morning saying, how can I be loved and how can I be served? Rather than thinking, how can I love and how can I serve? So implications are aimed at asking questions like, why do we do the opposite of what the text requires? Why do I not love my wife? What's going on in my heart? What, am I, what are my idols? What am I worshiping? What am I believing? What am I valuing? And then saying, okay, I'm, I'm believing that. I believe that error, that falsehood, now I need to replace it with truth. And when I'm thinking rightly, when I'm believing rightly, when I'm valuing things rightly, then I know that love to my wife in practical ways will flow out. Now that doesn't negate the benefit of application. A lot of what we do in discipleship is helping people then as they're beginning to change the way they think within, see what that looks like when it's worked outward, right? It may be appropriate for a man to buy his wife flowers when he's gone so long without doing anything for her, but that needs to be the fruit of change inwardly, not the sole thing that's being applied or the sole evidence of that application. But I will say this as well, just to make sure this is balanced. There is certainly a sense in which the Bible teaches us that change is two-directional. For example, in light of what I just said, what would you do with uh, Matthew 6, 20 to 21, that says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, here's the reason, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice how sometimes change goes the other direction. You start investing in something, and you'll begin to value it. And so there is a sense in which, I think this goes back to some basic principles even in parenting, right? It's not just about changing their heart, but sometimes teach them to do the right thing, and it will, there will be a backward movement where they begin to realize, okay, that teaches me what I ought to be valuing. You, you devote your money to things that are valuable, and you'll begin to value those things. So don't take what I said initially about the inward-to-outward change, however true that is, to say that's the only thing we should ever do, and there's no value in ever doing what God says unless... We really want to do it. There's a sense in which the Lord also calls us to do even what we don't yet value in anticipation of that change coming about. All right, let me wrap this up by just taking us through a couple examples of this process of application. For the sake of making this simple, because you can, you know, we've, we've talked about all these steps of interpretation. This could be a long process, right? Each time having to work through all these steps like we did with 2 Timothy to get to understanding the meaning and then trying to apply it. So I'm going to pick some texts that hopefully will be a bit more familiar for you. The first one I picked 
was just Job, because I had preached that two weeks ago, and so most of you who were there on Sunday morning will be familiar with the meaning. We've all together looked at it. So just going back to Job, in my own notes, this wouldn't have been too explicit for you in the sermon, but in my own notes, what I wrote down as being the purpose of Job, notice that not just the theme, but the purpose was this, to encourage individuals to trust the Lord in the midst of suffering, even when there are no explanations for their suffering. So what I'm trying to say is, why did the author of Job write this book and put it before the community in Israel, the covenant community? I think he did it to encourage individuals to trust the Lord in the midst of suffering, even when there are no explanations for their suffering. And so the principle I took away from that, that now is clear, was clear in my sermon, is this. The book of Job teaches us to contentedly trust the Lord when his ways seem inscrutable. The book of Job teaches us to contentedly trust the Lord when his ways seem inscrutable. And you can see that having identified the purpose, the move now to that principle was really quite simple, right? doesn't change too much. And then what were some of the applications? Well, for one thing, that because we won't always understand why people suffer, and it may not necessarily mean because they're wicked, then we can't infer from experiences, like some, whether someone's seeming to do well, prosper, or suffer, we can't infer anything about their righteous status or God's disposition toward them. Right? That was one obvious application, because we derived the principle from the book, and now we're applying it. And we can apply it, therefore, not only to say that those who suffer may not be wicked, which is obviously the case there in Job, but we can also apply that principle in other scenarios, like to say that just because someone's flourishing doesn't necessarily mean they're righteous. God has purposes we don't always understand. When we're suffering, this is another application, we need to trust God rather than demanding answers. That clearly flows from that principle that the book of Job teaches us to contentedly trust the Lord when his ways seem inscrutable. So they're contentedly trusting the Lord rather than demanding answers. Another application, we need to acknowledge that we know only a part of all there is to know, and what we have been given is all we need to glorify the Lord. In other words, the book of Job is specifically applying this principle in the context of suffering, but the principle is a bit broader. We don't, the Lord's only revealed so much to us, what he knows we need, and hasn't revealed to us everything we may want to know, and that's going to come up as being a temptation for us even in other domains. We wish the Lord would explain this to us, but he hasn't, and we need to be content that the Lord's given us everything we need to know to glorify him. And if he hasn't revealed X to us, we don't need to know X to glorify him. We need to keep following his commands and trust him with that. So there's an example in Job, how you take for the purpose. And once you've nailed down the purpose, then you kind of see the principle, which often isn't too far away, and apply it. Another one, uh, this one I'm just picking up from a sermon I preached uh, last year in 2020 from Psalm 2. The purpose, I think, of Psalm 2 is to declare the Lord's purposes to restore his rightful rule through the Davidic king, and to declare the implication, which is submit or, or be destroyed. I'm realizing as I'm saying this, many of you may not be initially, immediately thinking, oh yeah, that's what Psalm 2 is, but I'm looking at the clock and realize it's probably going to be beneficial for us to take the time to read all of Psalm 2. But essentially, that's what Psalm 2 is con- conveying, to declare the Lord's purposes to restore his rightful rule through the Davidic king, and to declare the implication, which is submit or be destroyed. And so applications coming from that purpose would be things like submit to Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. Another one would be, as you see that the Lord has a purpose to put all things right in the world, trust him. As you look at things being broken in the world, you don't need to just panic. You don't need to think all things are out of control. You recognize, no, the Lord is aware and is working a plan to reconcile all things to himself. So we can trust him as an obvious application of Psalm 2. We could also say, okay, if he has a plan that he's trying to work out, and if he has certain expectations of his people, 
then we can ask, well, what, what does he expect of us to do in light of this plan he's working out? Now, Psalm 2 is not going to answer that for us. But it would remind us, though, of the importance when we see things seeming like they're out of control and as we're trusting the Lord that he has a plan for resolving all things, that we need to go to the New Testament to see in this covenantal context, how do we do our part? What does he expect of us within this stage of his plan? Um, Here's another one. Let me actually skip. I was going to go to Psalm 51 next. Let's skip Psalm 51, and let's move down to a final one that we'll handle a bit differently. This is where we'll conclude. But go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to this one just because this is one of those ones that at least theoretically is a bit more thorny. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul begins by giving some instructions, and he says in verse 8 about what he wants the men in the churches to be doing. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And then he moves in verse 9 to the women. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair in gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So I'm bringing this up because what often happens with this passage is people look at this and they say, well, clearly this this whole aspect of um, verse 10, a woman quietly receiving instruction with entire submissiveness, verse 12, so it was verse 11, verse 12, not allowing a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet, clearly that doesn't apply because neither are we applying verse 9, that women must not wear braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. Superficially, that might seem compelling. If you're not going to apply one, why not apply another? And to be quite fair... For those who would say women shouldn't be teaching or exercising authority, but yet it's okay to wear those other things, for many, there's not really a a principle to how they're applying that. It is just simply, well, I was always taught that women shouldn't be doing that, but that women can wear gold or can wear braided hair, right? But it is helpful when you consider something significant like this to ask, well, is there really a principle or is this just a matter of that's my tradition? You know, an application by tradition. I apply whatever will support what I'm currently doing or used to doing or would like to do. Well, since we're using this as sort of just an example, one of the things we're often needing to look for is, is there some sort of principle? Like, what is the principle? What's the principle driving this particular application? Is this even just a principle? Or is this merely an application? Going back to our three initial groups of texts, you know, those that are simply the principle, those that are principle being applied, and those that are simply an application. So you have to kind of ask, which one is this? Well, here we find in the first part, both a principle and an application. Verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And then we see it applied, right? Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. So this is helpful because now we're able to see what the principle is. Proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And in this context, modestly probably refers not so much to not attracting the gaze of men as much as to like a financial, economic modesty, not flaunting wealth so as to create some kind of distinction. Obviously, both would apply, but that's in this context primarily what's in view. So that's the principle. And yet the way it's specifically working out comes afterward, the application And so, within that context, one way that women would flaunt their wealth would be braided hair, or gold, or gold, or pearls, or costly garments. And yet, in our context, braided hair doesn't necessarily, isn't a show of wealth, is it? 
Um, in fact, often wearing pearls, especially in a world of whatever they call them, fake pearls, is not necessarily a show of wealth. And even gold, just by general economic standards, isn't necessarily a show of wealth. It could be in certain contexts, but not necessarily. Um, costly garments. Um, but we could still see how that could apply in other ways. There might be certain handbags that just shout, this costs me a whole lot of money. And so it says something about how big my pocketbook is. And I think Paul would say, that's not exercising the kind of modesty and you're kind of needlessly drawing attention to your status economically in the church that you shouldn't be doing. But that would be a proper application, not simply avoiding braided hair. So the, just kind of drawing out from having kind of talked you through that first verse, the principle here is look for is what we're hearing in the text simply an application or is it a principle or is there both? And in this context, we see pretty easily there's both, right? We can see the principle and the application, and therefore we can now say, okay, this is simply the cultural application. Here's the principle. Now we need to take the principle and apply in our own context. And then we can go on to the other portion, but I'm noticing it's 6.15, so let's stop there. All right, a lot about application, and it's a big topic. So I've kind of just tried to take some broad general principles and just kind of uh, dip in to get a flavor for what are some of these things we should be thinking through as we seek to move from having understood the text as God intended it to now applying it. And this is something we're going to ongoingly do, not only in the context of hermeneutics, but just as life in a body where we're seeking to know what God has said and apply it in many spheres. And the more we begin to think more carefully about how we do that, the more you're going to learn as you hear other people teaching as you hear other people talking about taking the text and applying it. Do you have any questions? All right. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we recognize the sobriety of having before us, in our hands, your revelation to us. And we know we desperately need it, And yet, Lord, we we recognize that the process of trying to understand it rightly and then to apply it faithfully sometimes can be daunting. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would not be discouraged from doing that at all simply because we've kind of looked some of the difficulty in its face, but that we would be compelled to work hard because we value your word more highly than anything. I pray, Lord, that you would help us that you would help us to grow in the skill of understanding your word rightly and applying it rightly. Um, I pray, Lord, that no one here would be uh, tempted to just recoil and stop applying because they're afraid they will apply it incorrectly, but that we will work together, leaning into this process because we want to be shaped and we want to be transformed by your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we work hard to do this, that you will be pleased to work by your spirit among us and make us a beautiful bride ready to be presented on the last day to Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.